I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. Prelude. Is there anything wrong with the world at all? Or has it always been this way? Can we point to one singular event that caused the anomalies to multiply out of control? Who started the fire? Nothing has changed. No, I think it's always been this way. I've read the reports. Alchemical texts, old mimetic studies, prophecies, rituals, recipes, and meetings of minutes. Contradictory ephemera, each describing the same event. I've read and reread accounts, and I can't quite put my finger on what changed that day. Again, if anything changed at all. I'm convinced it's all just superstition. The precursors to the GOC, the initiative, like other such occult societies during the time, were mostly interested in putting on airs. You would say you were a skilled soothsayer to impress your noble friends. You would say you communed with God or perfected a curative tincture to gain status. These things should all be read with a grain of salt. Is there evidence that no anomaly has ever existed before that day? If that could be proven somehow, maybe we would have a line. Today, the sky above is wispy with feathers of birds migrating to nowhere, and down by the water, their heads become temporarily dislodged. The horizon is shaded in static purple, and I can see it all. Everything is real and original. Everything has gone to hell. And this rock seems to be my Faraday cage. I can't be sure of what I am anymore. Am I the only one still capable of being afraid? I could be the only one waiting for the singularity. Everything else is indifferent. The rats have been multiplying for ages, but it shouldn't be long now. The year is 3053, and I've seen it all. Let's begin at the end. Part 1. A Terrible Thing Four figures cut through the frozen drifts and rime frost air. They are wrapped in thermals and jackets and parkas, faces obscured. The wind has taken their words. The cold has taken their speech. They know where they're going. The spook leads them. He walks with the confidence of a man half his age. The librarian follows. They crane their neck, probing for answers and place. The jailer comes third. She's focused on the path, controlling her breath. The freak comes last. He's larger than the rest. He wears no parka. The jailer falls. Her foot breaks the fragile ice, and her leg disappears into the cold abyss. She cries out in shock, unformed words pleading for help. It's the only sound for miles. The cold intrusion has broken her composure, but it was no matter. Her life had been made forfeit long ago. The librarian and the spook do not break pace. The freak lifts her from the crystal waters. Their eyes meet, separated by ice and emerald glass. They exchange no words. At the edge of the world, the four figures trudge through the static towards a small metal shack. Part 2. The Freak. A Dead Thing. The freak leaves the compound and steps into the fog-white snow. His feet sink with a crunch into the permafrost. It breaks beneath his weight. He is not deterred. He shifts his feet. Free-flowing flesh make wide pads. He cannot see the machine, but he knows where it is. He has had to learn. 
he reflects as he walks. He's a single dot in a snow-white void. The freak cannot remember how long he has been here. The sun does not set nor rise. His light is a pallid and gray diffuse. The routine never changes. There is only the freak, the snow, and the others. The freak counts his steps, small tongue tasting the cold with each word. Five hundred steps, then stop, turn right. It's a familiar beat. He and the jailer have practiced it. He turns. One thousand, one hundred and twenty-four steps to go. A memory. The freak strides out into the blizzard. He's proud and tall. His drive is great. His mission two days fresh in his mind. He is Ion's child. His faith is stronger than any blizzard in these icy flats. The cold keeps its distance. He moves with purpose, a flame lighting the vast darkness. The winds roar and howl, but their rage is nothing compared to his fire. He charts the alien topography without care. The storm grows slowly, but he pays it no heed. The machine should be in sight. He turns left. He will find it. The blizzard does not abate. The pale gray has turned to empty black. The freak's wide eyes gain no purchase in the frozen purgatory. He cannot hear himself think. The only sound is ice and frost and wind. He feels the cold on his fingertips. The freak does not know where he is. He does not know how long he has been there. He only knows that it is cold and that the long night has come for him. He draws his flesh close and waits. He does not know what for. A figure wrapped thick in parka approaches an obtruse cairn of snow and ice in the frozen wastes. It has been some time since the freak has been seen at the compound. It leans down toward the cairn with pick and shovel and begins its work. 313 steps to go. The jailer has found the freak's frozen body, preserved and crystalline. She brought him back to the compound where they had practiced the steps, set the path. The freak looks up. Before him rises a squat tower of steam and steel. From here he can feel the heat of the machine below. He pulls open the door and descends the slick, wet stairs. At the end of the stairs is a small room. It smells of rotting flesh and grease. It's wet with steam and oil, which cover the gears and barrels in a thin and shiny film. The room was hollowed out from the ice for maintenance of the machine. The far wall is the machine, a maze of gears and pipes and flesh. The machine is lashed together from gears and pitch and the corpse of a god. At the end of the earth it fires the kiln of creation, but its creators were hasty. They had to be. The machine needs maintenance. The gears that turn it run rusty. The magics that bind it need renewal. The message it screams needs decoding. The machine runs hot. It's hot enough to kill a normal human, but the freak does not notice. He hears the rusted gears scream with every rotation. He frees them from their moorings. The screaming does not subside. The freak sits and begins to work. The gears must be scoured. The flesh must be sloughed. His first ribbons into gossamer, chitinous strings that abraze the machinery. His sweat and blood mix with the oil and lubricate the gears. The rhythm of scour, oil, repeat becomes a quiet and mechanical litany and a maelstrom of noise. Its heresy runs down his spine. He remembers Sarajevo, the profane machines that blacken the sky and the blasphemies they rain down on the followers of the prophet. 
He remembers the jailers and the librarians and the thing that seeped through the cracks made by the armies of men. Most of all, he remembers Ion's face, the look in Ion's eyes. He could not place it then. There is one gear left. The freak rises and begins to assess the flesh. He is delicate and precise while relishing each moment. In every moment, he feels closer to the promise of Ion, a network of flesh and sinew that cross the earth in warm embrace. If he closes his eyes, he can almost feel his kin. The freak stands alone in the room. He is touching the new raw flesh of the machine, waiting for it to speak to him. The freak looks down at the last gear. In it, he sees his kin, beholden to cold metal, a philosophy, a theology of the world, his savior, struck down. The freak places the rusted gear back on the machine. He cannot bring himself to clean it. He cannot afford himself that heresy. The freak leaves the room and heads back into the permafrost. He sees a huddled figure passing in the distance, one of the others, out of the compound. The freak remembers the look in Ion's eyes. He knows it now. It was fear. Part 3. The Librarian. A Broken Promise. A consciousness in a sea of magic swims with a determination. It has no name, only a purpose. It lands on a ley line, one of the many that used to cross the world. It spindles along, paying no mind to the others that touch its edges. It has been set with a task. The sun does not rise, but in their small room, cluttered with books and words, the librarian sees a soft and golden glow. It is small comfort. The consciousness, its purpose served, fades. It was a tool for a job and nothing more. The librarian rises. There is work to be done. Mechanically, they begin to don layers. Their mind wanders. When they're finished, they are an unrecognizable golem of nylon, fur, and fleece. The librarian steps into the leprous white snow. Behind their emerald goggles, the frozen moor appears a garden. The floor is verdant expanse. The magics that grow at the edges of the machine are its flora. The ley lines that converge on the horizon on the machine are tillage ripe for growing. The snow is ablutive rain, feeding and cleansing. It reminds them of the library. The librarian savors this transgressive memory before discarding it. Memories serve only to distract. A tool has no need for distractions. A tool has no need for names. In an anodized steel tube of specific proportions, the librarian gathers the first dew of the morning. A single crystal of ice shimmers with static and potential in its metal prison. The librarian turns back toward the compound. The jailer has laid out the new instructions in the room. On each card, a binding to be done, a seal to be repaired. Each cycle, the jailer delivers new ones. The method is crafted by numbers and scientists. The librarian does not know its design, but they know its purpose. First, blood. They feel the cold steel pierce their flesh, and watch the warm life spill from them onto the floor. Hands slick, they coax the blood into sigils of long-dead languages that fight against their resurrection. Their eyes water as it takes hold in the firmament behind it. Elsewhere, five people die in a gas leak. Two of them have no name. Another sees only snow. The world grows a little smaller. The librarian continues. They take the anodized steel and open it, pouring forth oil and sacrament and heresy and flesh. It pools in the concrete room, a thing now bound and made form. It knows only the librarian and the desire to be unmade. 
The librarian begins to speak in hoarse and frozen tongues. The thing writhes and thrashes, but it is chained by concrete and ice and things that man was never meant to know. The words freeze in the librarian's throat, but they are no longer the words of any language. The thing breaks free and smothers the librarian, and is broken upon the bow of the fringes of the machine. The cycle is not broken. The librarian has finished cleaning the room. Their task has become rote. With each cycle, the thing occupies a smaller space in their mind. They gather the notes from the jailer and hold the collection to their chest. They can feel the warmth of every word. In the boreal abyss, any writing is valuable. The librarian protects the words and returns to their room. They bolt their door and wait for stillness. In that stillness, they speak their name. They feel its power hang in the air before them. The librarian turns to their books and begins recording names. Part 4. The Spook. An Honorable Man. The spook pushes back from the listening post. He looks up resentfully at the labyrinth of resistors and wires and tubes that glow with residual energy. The fraying orange makes his vision swim. He wipes something liquid from his eyes. He cannot bring himself to check the color. The message never changes. He hates it for that. In a puerile outburst, he throws the headphones against the floor and listens to the sharp clatter that cuts through the dull thrum and the electric chirping. He is still alone in a listening post in a small metal shack at the edge of the world. The spook cannot remember how long he has been there. He lost track, but does not know when. The spook cannot remember his name. It was taken from him by the librarian's people. They said that it would be a distraction from the mission. The spook knows that the book lovers know nothing of duty. Taking the names of the four was a coward's choice. The stupid look on the librarian's face as they claimed no one could record names on the compound incensed him further. He was alone. The freak shrugged. The librarian went along. The jailer said nothing, and he could not read her eyes. But he knows something they do not know. The message should have changed. He knew it in a way that he had not known things before. It was proof of their duplicity. The only thing left was to find out who. The spook pulls out a slim black book from his pocket. The interior is lined with thin deliberate black ink. Comings and goings, schedules and timings. It is the culmination of watchful waiting and patience. The paranoias of a diseased mind. He knows where each one is. The freak is at the masthead. The librarian is in the concrete room. The jailer is cataloging. These are their roles, and he knows that they do not have the courage to break it. Only he serves this higher purpose. The spook turns from the insistent staccato of the listening post and to the door. The message can wait. It has not changed. He is headed to find more information on the jailer. She is difficult to read, but she is no match for the spook. It is only a matter of time till he finds something that incriminates her. The other two are known quantities. The librarian is weak and afraid. The freak is a mindless automaton without his profit. It does not take long for the spook to discern this. Only a couple of cycles after he knew that there was a traitor, before he was confident in that knowledge, he could read them. He had volunteered for this position. He had heard the rumors among the people that worked with him of a mission. Whispers and rumors, but he pieced it together. It did not take long for him to convince the higher-ups. A single look at his record had sufficed. But the jailer, she was an unknown quantity. No record, no history, no name. Tailing her was easy for the spook. She never noticed him following, passing, watching. 
recording. She was busy, distracted, cataloging, writing instructions for the librarian, repairing exactly the same cycle after cycle. He would have caught any discrepancies. He failed his country once before, in the killing fields of the Daenerys Mountains. He was weak. He would not be weak again. In the hall of the compound, a dull gray light diffracts through frosted crystal. He looks outside. It is instinctual. In the fog-white snow, a figure, huddled against the cold. It moves with precision and determination. An aberration, an affront to the schedule, a profanity forced into the face of the spook and his book. Proof. His mind turns quickly. The figure is coming from the generators. He returns to the listening post and waits to enact his new plan. He does not listen to the message screaming for attention. He knows what he must do. It is good that he has the courage to see it done. Part 5. The Jailer The freak, the librarian, the spook, and the jailer are seated in a room in the compound. Once every six cycles, a meal aligns. The jailer arrived last. It is not the first time. Their bodies are present, but their minds are elsewhere, mired in past iniquities. There is no conversation but that between utensil and plate. The only other noise is the low buzz of the generators. The freak has nearly finished his third portion. The librarian is lost in thought. The spook is watching the jailer. The jailer looks at nothing. All four of them see the lights of the compound shut off. All four of them hear the generators die. The spook stands quickly and knocks his chair over with a metallic noise. The librarian looks at the others, wild-eyed and nervous. The freak's flesh ripples. He is ready. The jailer does not react. Her eyes are watching the spook. In the anemic, irregular yellow flashes of the emergency lights, the four can see the gun that the spook has pulled. It travels between the three, but the jailer is its favorite. The spook speaks first. Someone's a rat. The jailer's voice is hoarse from disuse, and this is how you convince us. Shut up. Shut up. The gun snaps to the jailer like a wounded animal. I'm in charge. This. This was sabotage. Someone killed the generators. The spook continues. I saw someone outside, headed to the generators, 0800 hours, a quarter into the cycle. No one was supposed to be outside for another five hours. The freak and the librarian speak over each other. And how do you know this? Weren't you, weren't you at the listening station at that time? The freak and the librarian lock eyes. One wonders how the spook's location was known. The other wonders how it was not. The freak breaks the silence. Is everyone tracking the movement of each other, then? The spook's eyes dart toward the librarian. His gun shifts toward them. He is loath to move it from the jailer. Where were you, then? Their neck cranes back, behind them. I was in the room, since I woke up. The librarian's eyes are wide but clear. The spook nods. He has what he needs. He turns to the freak now. And you, are you the traitor? Why are you even here, so you could try and revive your dead prophet? The freak's face darkens. The spook feels cold sweat on his neck. Only one left then. The safety clicks. Gun turns towards the jailer. The freak begins to stand. The gun jumps back to the freak. The spook moves like a caged animal. The freak speaks. Why don't we all stop and consider? We all want the same thing here. I'm sure there's no need for weapons. You, 
You think your conscience is clean. I saw what your dead prophet did. I saw the fanaticism in your people's eyes. Don't fucking pretend you're a peacekeeper. In the interminable silence, only the jailer responded. You were there, at Sarajevo. The gun sweeps smoothly back to the jailer. It is guided by steady hands. Anger has strengthened the spook's resolve. He speaks. Yes, I saw the skies turn dark with pitch. I heard his last screams, and I saw your slimy organization ooze up right before it was complete and undermine our victory from us. Because you didn't think we could do it. Because you didn't have the balls to do what needed to be done like we did. Like I did. I see. I see. Can't you say anything else? Can't you be a fucking person for once and show some sort of regret for what you did? For forcing us into this hellhole, day after goddamn day? There was only supposed to be one person who bore witness to Sarajevo. The spook slams his fist onto the table, launching fury and utensils. The gun shakes with rage. It is a foot away from the jailer's face now. Her silence says enough. I know what you are. You play all high and mighty like you're above it all, but you're not. You let others fight your battles for you. Deep down in your shriveled black heart, you just want power. So you can crush everyone beneath you, a fucking boot stomping on the human race forever. The spook stands triumphant. He knows he has trapped the traitor and there is only her confession left. Her cracked lips peel into a smile. A thin rivulet of blood trickles down bold coming from you. The freak moves deliberately. The spook moves on feral instinct and boiled over rage. He pulls the trigger three times. Five things happen at once. The first bullet goes wide. He did not concentrate on his target. A vacuum tube breaks from the force of impact. The glass shards, like so many stars, begin to fall. The freak's flesh flows like liquid across the table to grapple the spook. He catches the second bullet in a tangled gnarl of abscess and tendon. The jailer moves fluidly. She grabs the spook's arm and runs it through with an unclean knife. Using the knife as leverage, she pulls at the spook's arm where it does not bend. It is not a clean break. The space around the librarian flashes a sickly green. The end of the table they were sitting at is gone. A high-pitched whine sounds. It is redolent of things that man long forgot. The third bullet finds its mark in the lower stomach of the freak. It bores a clean hole through his heart. The spook could not have known. Only the librarian knew. The jailer wrests the gun from the spook's hand and shoots him in the head. The glass shards of the vacuum tube shatter on the concrete like ice crystals. The jailer stands. She walks around the spook's body that is now pooling blood and tracks dark red prints on the concrete. The librarian watches her warily, but she pays them no mind. She stands before the freak, gun in hand. The freak's vision fades in and out of white snow at the edges. He feels warm for the first time since he came to the compound. It is not as comforting as he remembers. He sees the jailer loom above him. He sees her squat down next to him. They have long exhausted words to share. In this moment there is only silence and an understanding. The freak closes his eyes. The gun sounds once, a dull thud. He can no longer see the snow. The librarian speaks. The jailer has not put down the gun. What now? We continue. Was it you? No. Bad luck, paranoid man. Shame. He broke so early. 
The librarian moves quickly. Words in an old dead tongue spill forth from their mouth, the rush of pain and power and exhilaration filling the librarian. Ley lines course through them, so easy when they were weakened by the machine. The green light explodes past human colors and bolts toward the jailer. And then something is taken from them. The librarian feels their connection cut abruptly, jagged and cold. Alone, separated from their magic in the library, only the cold remains. The jailer still stands, a gun trained on them, and a dripping boot above a crude, blood-edged rune that scratches at the back of their mind. The gun is not loud enough to be heard over the blizzard outside. Part 6. Bernadette, the Only Survivor the jailer steps out into the cold. She is well insulated, but it's not long before the rime frost begins to creep along the emerald edges of her vision. She does not seem to mind. She takes out a device of steel and silicon. Through thick gloves, she punches in a single digit and waits. She stares at the device with emotions that no one is present to identify. Her mouth moves under the many layers, forming a quiet mantra of foreign sounds to her. She knows they are meaningful, but she does not remember why. The device flickers with energy. Behind her glasses stands a figure that she knows is not really there, but it is present, and she must talk to it. 8. A number, a designation, not a name, but it carries the same power. 8 is dressed in a well-tailored suit, but its face does not hold in her memory. Agent, your name. It is not a question. Burr. Nuh. Debt. Bernadette. Her mantra, now loud, now real. Bernadette nods. It is done. Who was it this time? The spook. Became obsessed with scheduling. Broke when the generators failed. You're doing? Does it matter? Eight chuckles. Bernadette remembers the temperature. I suppose not. And the rest? The librarian kept their name. The other one didn't fix the gears. Eight's teeth shine through Bernadette's memory. A terrible thing, isn't it? You're not going soft on me, are you? The other one, I didn't think you were capable of such kindness. It got done either way, machines still running. I should be finished with all this by the time the transport gets here. As professional as always, the usual, a month off before the next three are selected. Bernadette nods. Anything else? Not at all. Excellent work, Dr. R. Eight is simply gone. In many ways, it was never really there. Bernadette grunts. Eight loved rubbing it in that she couldn't remember her full name for a couple of weeks. She turns around and trudges back through the frozen drifts and rime frost air toward the compound. At the edge of the world, the machine roars back to life. If you like this podcast, subscribe and share it with the community. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts under Kelsey Narrates. You can send me comments at kelseynarrates.blogspot.com and you can support financially through patreon.com slash kelseynarrates. Credit to the original author, Ryman. Content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0 and all concepts originate from www.scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0.
I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.